All right, well, as they make their way to their class, I invite you to open in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 11, or excuse me, 3 through 11. So that's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Well, this is our, our next uh, pillar, if you will. We went through gospel last week. We're talking about change this week as we go through this uh, brief series on what it looks like to be Redemption Hill Church, or at least what we hope will look like. As we said in the first week, at the end of the day, what Redemption Hill Church actually looks like is really more up to you than up to me and any prospectus that I write. At the end of the day is, will we live out these pillars that we're talking about? So that's what we want to do is we're going to open the scriptures and see what they're, ta- see what they're teaching us. And last week, as we looked at gospel, and we looked at just three ways, and we talked about how the gospel does a lot more than just three things in our lives. We just look at three truths and how that applies to life. What we see is that when we are captured by the gospel, when we become Christians, we then are brought on this journey of change. Theologically speaking, we call that progressive sanctification. What that means is that we change over time. The word sanctification means just to become holy. Another way we can think of that is to look more and more like Jesus over time. And so we talk about that pillar of change. That's what we're saying is we as a community people are coming together and we are committed to the idea that all of us are a work in progress. That all of us are becoming more and more holy over time. And so as we look at this today, I want us to see that we can be fruitful. So when the Bible talks about that change and those things that happens, it often uses, uh, like our scripture reading that we had from Galatians today, talks about the fruit of the Spirit. That when we live the way that God would have us live, it is a fruitful kind of life. And so we want to be a fruitful kind of church. A church that is constantly changing and growing, each individual looking more and more like Christ. And that means as we do that, and we commit to do that corporately, that our church also changes over time to look more and more like Jesus, more and more like he would have us be uh, until one day, uh, either until when Jesus comes back, we will, as we sang, the blazing sun will pierce the night and we will rise and see the face of Jesus and we'll be the bride that we're supposed to be pure and holy. And until that time, we're working just little by little to get there. So let's go ahead and read from 2 Peter verse, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. It says this, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And with virtue, knowledge. And with knowledge, self-control. And with self-control, with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For these qualities are yours and increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Having forgot that he was cleansed from his former sins, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things or these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, as we take this kind of paragraph by paragraph, this section this morning, what I want us to see first is this, is that we are fruitful Because we have all that we need. 
we look there in verse 3. It says, His divine power, talking about the Lord, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What that means is God has not left you. He has not told you, hey, go, be holy, be sanctified, and then left you lacking the tools necessary to accomplish that. He's not left you without the necessary equipment. But it's telling us in in this passage that we have been giving all that we need that pertains to living life in a godly way. Peter is writing to this, this group of Christians that are dispersed. This is probably a letter that got passed from church to church to church. But the reality is that the early church was faced with a lot of struggle and, and difficulty. And he's telling them in the midst of struggle, in the midst of difficulty, God has not left you uh, without the things that you need. He's saying you have all that you need. You've been giving everything that pertains to life and godliness, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Because he's writing to them and he's saying, I want grace and peace to be multiplied in you, that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus. And so that's what he's saying in this, that, that you've been given all that you need. And we can see that in this passage. What are those things? So not just, hey, you've been given all you need, and then he kind of leaves you there. But he's really specific in this passage of what he's given us. So let's look through. He says, through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence. So he has given you the knowledge of Christ. What he's saying is he's called you and you can live this life. You can live the life, a godly life, but not on your own, according not to your own glory, not according to your own excellence, not in of yourself, but according to being called into the glory and excellence of Christ, that he's given you that. And by that glory and excellence, by that salvation, when you became a Christian, he's saying by this, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. See, God has given us these very precious promises. And I think what happens a lot of times is, is, is we miss those promises. We, we're either so just unaware of what those promises are, or we just maybe don't functionally really believe them. Promises like Philippians 1, 6. He says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is a promise that you will be changed over time. You're not hopeless. You're not stuck. That sin that you've been struggling with, what seems like for years, it can be conquered in Jesus. You're not going to be left where you are, but he's promising that over time in this life, he's going to bring about the work that he started when he saved you to make you pure and holy when you stand before him. Promises like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not uncommon to man or that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That there's never a situation where we say my circumstances, my life, whatever has gone on is just so dire, so extreme that I can have an excuse to sin or that I've been left on my own to be faithful all by myself. But the passage is telling us, no, God has provided you a way of escape, that he has made it. So these temptations, these difficulties that you are feeling, you will be able to endure all of them, but not because of you, but because he's given that way of escape. These are awesome promises that God has given to us that we can need to take hold of in the gospel. And the Bible is filled with promises like these. But like I said, there's a, there's a gap for many of us. We just don't see how everyday life, the mundane things, the difficult things, the really good things, whatever they are, how do they really apply to the gospel? How do they apply 
to the Bible? How, what does God have to say about the everyday stuff? Paul Tripp in his book uh, called How People Change, he talks about this and he calls it the gospel gap. And he says, we, we miss how the Bible applies to the here and now. He said a lot of times in churches, we talk about a lot like our past forgiveness of sin, what Jesus has done for us and future hope that, that one day you're gonna go to heaven and be with Jesus. But what a lot of times we kind of miss is the reality that there's this here and now. That God is calling us to live holy and live for him now and in this moment. And what we see a lot, in particular for Christians all over and lots of different churches, even myself, is we just don't see the connection. There's a gap between what does the gospel have to say about everyday life? There's, there's something that I'm missing. I, I don't quite see how this kind of connects to the mundane. Well, what we see is, is that when we take hold of those promises, when we know them well, and that when we live by faith in those promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. We become connected to Christ. We bring in Jesus and, and all that he has to offer us into the everyday life. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. We're basically just saying this in the last song or the second song there. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul is saying this life that you now live in the flesh, right now, here, this earthly life that you have to live, you don't have to live by yourself, but by placing our faith in Jesus who has been crucified, we can crucify the old self and be risen again to walk in our new self with Christ, Christ living in us. But I love that he talks about the, here, the life I live by, or excuse me, the, I, the life I live now in the flesh. He's saying, you've got to live today. We don't just become Christians and become these like ultra spiritual people who, who, who are just disconnected from the everydayness of life. Uh, as C.S. Lewis has said before, some, sometimes some Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And that's what I'm trying to get at here is what we have to see is that we've been giving everything pertaining to life and godliness according to, because he has called us into his own glory and excellence according to his precious and very great promises. Some, some translations will say his magnificent promises. And that when we live in those promises, you become a partaker of the divine nature and you escape the corruption of the world because of its sinful desires. See, what's happening is when you crucify your flesh through faith, your desires are changed. You're no longer given over to sinful desire that brings corruption to your life and to your flesh, but you're given new desires, desires to live a godly life, to, to pursue holiness. And then through that, that's what the process of change looks like. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying the Bible has everything to say about everything material in this life, right? If your car breaks down tomorrow, don't go to Matthew chapter 6 or James 1. It's, that's not going to help you very much if you need to, you know, I don't know, fix a carburetor or change a car battery or something like that. Get an owner's manual, get a mechanic and do those things. But here's what I want to say. I don't believe that the Bible is silent to your car breaking down. I really don't. Because you have to respond to that reality. Perhaps the money's tight. That's your ride to work. You're not feeling on this dual and double pressure of I don't have money to fix my car and now I can't get to work to make more money. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? 
Perhaps you're just really, really mad because this is now just another thing on the long list of things that's gone wrong this week and you just cannot believe that everything is against you. The universe hates me. God must not love me anymore. Nothing is going the way that I want. And you're really, really mad. Well, what I want to say is this, is while Matthew 6 doesn't have anything to say about the carburetor, it has a lot to say about your worry and your difficulty. Let's read from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. And I'm not going to get off on another sermon here. I just want to make my point. (laughs) Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What will you put on? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Or can fix a carburetor? (laughs) And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added for you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, or tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, I'm not going to go off into a rant about worry. My point is this. Do not believe the lie that God has nothing to say about your everyday life. I promise you, he has everything to say to the responses and the struggles of what you are going through. The Bible is speaking loud and clear, and I don't want to just sound like I'm slapping a Bible verse at your worry and anxiety. I know it's more difficult than that, but man, it's a good place to start. Thinking through and knowing, okay, God's not surprised by the car breaking down. He he knew that this was going to happen. He loves me. He's going to care for me. Now let me solve this problem. Instead of what happens when we get anxious, we spin into this spiral of never-ending anxiety, and we think of all the things that's going to go wrong, and not only is the carburetor not broken, but I bet everything else in that car is broken too. Like, no, it's not. It's just like one thing. What are we ever going to do? And we're like so caught up in that moment that we forget that there's a mechanic at our sending church who would probably come and help you out and give you some free labor, right? Like we forget that there's that there's real and practical solutions to these problems because we spin and spin and spin and spin. You're under the car and another thing falls and you hit your knuckles and you're just really, really mad. You're about to lose it. I'm not trying to slap a Bible verse to your anger, but man, isn't it good news when you remember James 1? The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. To in that moment to remember that maybe, just maybe, that the God of the universe loves you so much, he's using the broken down car and he's using the wrench that slipped to sanctify you. In that moment, you have the opportunity to say, Lord, my life and purpose is not to fix this car. My purpose in this life and in this world is to bring you honor and glory and to pursue righteousness. Help me be righteous as I try to fix this car. Man, dad, do you realize how awesome that would be as your son's with you and instead of like losing it and using every expletive for him to hear that instead? 
as we deal with these things, these, these everyday frustrations of life, to remember and be reminded what God is trying to accomplish in your life. That's what I'm trying to say. He's given you everything that you need to, that pertains to life and godliness. Go to the owner's manual to figure out how to replace the battery. But don't forget that the Bible is not silent to your everyday struggles. And that when you do that, in that moment, as you're saying, God, I'm going to lean on your promises. I know that you haven't forsaken me. I know that you're here. I know that you're in this moment. I know that you hear me when I pray to you. You are being able to be a partaker of the divine nature, meaning your old self is being crucified bit by bit by bit. And that old flesh is being torn away and you are being made alive in the spirit over and over and over again in the little mundane moments of life. God is here and he is speaking and he is changing you. So there are three things that I want to do that I want to suggest that it can help you bridge the gap. And I say this, bridging this gap, I have learned, it's a skill. It's a skill that takes time and it takes some effort. So I don't think these three things are magically going to do it. This is another example of get involved in a healthy local church and walk with us over time because this is a skill. But number one is this, become a student of God's word and value the, the word of God. Do you know last year it was calculated, I looked this up, excuse me, not even last year, in 2018, so it's probably even more now. 2018, 122 billion with a B dollars was spent on higher education. 122 billion dollars. Psalm 1910 tells us that the word of God is more precious than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter than a honeycomb. Our world has ascribed value to knowledge, and apparently it's really, 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 really valuable, like $122 billion valuable. Do you see the value in the word of God? I'm not telling you don't go to college. I went to college. I have two degrees. Go to college. It's a good thing. I'm not that's not what I'm saying. I'm not taking a a stab at higher education. I'm just trying to show you the world values that. There's so much value. And yet, when I talk to a lot of Christians, I'm amazed. And, and, I, and I don't mean this to sound me, but there, there are a lot of Christians who will say, I've never read the Bible all the way through. I have no idea what it all says. Reading the, the, the number one thing as a pastor that's usually said to us, what's your biggest struggle? Daily disciplines of reading the Bible. I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm just trying to say, because that's not going to help. Beating yourself up isn't going to help. You've got to see that it's valuable. That's what I'm trying to say. The Bible has treasure in it that you have not mined. And when you look at your life and you're like, I just don't understand what God has to do about this. I want to suggest that just maybe there is treasure buried deep in the scriptures that you have yet to mine out. That the answer is there. It really is. But you've got to go digging and it's going to take some effort. The second thing is you've got to become a student of your own heart. You've got to know and you've got to take the time. You've got to do the self-reflection and the hard work. Where am I tempted? What are my struggles? What are the things that I'm dealing with? Am I an angry person? Am I an anxious person? Am I a jealous person? You've got to do that. You've got to look at the word of God and see the things that it talks about in the food of fresh. And you've got to say, what am I still feeding on? That's all this world. And you've got to become a really good student of your own heart. You've got to be, really take the time to get down into that and to say, when I am jealous, why? What do I want? What do I desire? What is going on? And you've got to take that time and ask those hard questions. You might need to take a drive out into the country 
and spend some time with the Lord and really do that. You might need to get a journal and write it down to discover those things. I can't tell you how many times I was struggling with sin and I would write down, write down, write down and I just couldn't understand and I would sit back and I'd read that journal and I'd be like, whoa, that's why. Because that's what's in my heart. But man, it takes, it takes time. You've got to do that. And the last thing is this. Ask for help. You need help. I need help. We need the body. Nobody can do this on their own. Nobody can, can look and remove the speck that's in their own eye. You've got to come along some brother and some sister and say, hey, hold me down, open my eye up and get that speck that, that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7. I, I want it out and it's hard and this is difficult. Galatians 6 says this, this, this is the call of the church. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is our calling as a church. It is our responsibility as a church to bear one another's burdens, to restore one another, to help each other grow and to change. As we do this, as we see that God has given us all that we need in order to become more and more like Christ, we also know that he is inviting us in on the process. I've already kind of said it's going to take some work. And this is something that, that really stuck out to me. And that's what leads us to our next point. Because we are fruitful, but only through grace-fueled effort. The passage tells us in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Make every effort. For so long in my life with Jesus, I, I, had, I had heard the gospel of grace and I just, I don't know what happened, but somewhere I just kind of thought, like if I just love God enough or like, I don't know, believe hard enough, then it'll all come and I'll stop the sinning stuff that's happening. And while it has to be grace-fueled effort, you know what we find is you actually got to still put forth a little effort. It's not enough to just kind of sit and have this like overly pious, overly uh, kind of monk-like attitude of like, if I just get in the right frame of mind, then everything's going to work itself out. Then I don't really have to do anything. And there's this really helpful book. It's called The Whole in Our Holiness by uh, Kevin DeYoung. I'm a big Kevin DeYoung fan, uh, but I'm going to quote him at length here. He says this, and the quote should be on the screen uh, over the course of two slides. So stall with me, or hang in there with me. It says, some Christians are stalled out in their sanctification for simple lack of effort. They need to know about the Spirit's power. They need to be rooted in gospel grace. They need to believe in the promises of God, things that we've all been talking about. And they need to fight, strive, and make every effort to work out all that God is working in them. Let us say with Paul, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but by the grace of God that was within me. Without this biblical emphasis, we'll be confused, wondering why sanctification isn't automatically flowing from a heartfelt commitment to gospel-drenched justification. We'll be waiting around for enough faith to really get the gospel when God wants us to get up and get to work. Because when it comes to growth and godliness, Trusting does not put an end to trying. 
That is such a helpful thing. I needed that in my life. I don't know where, I just got kind of confused, but I lost this reality that there's a thing of grace-fueled effort, that God doesn't just ordain the end, but he ordained the means as well. And the means is to put forward some effort. Now we gotta be careful here. This is so hard because our hearts are prone to wander. We are very sinful. There is a difference between grace-fueled effort and just white-knuckle determination. There's a difference between the gospel of grace and a legalistic attitude of fix yourself, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, do it on your own. People who, who, say, who go towards the way of legalism, fix yourself, get determined, right? It looks like better schedule, better diet, better this, better that. I'm going to set a timer. I'm going to read this thing. I'm going to do this stuff. But there's no connection to what we talked about earlier. There's no living by faith and becoming a partaker of the divine nature. There's no crying out for help. There's no admitting that I'm not good enough. There's no just flat out, listen, I can't do this on my own. There's no dependency on the Lord. It's a, it's a self-righteous independency. I'm, I'm going to change ourself. But grace-fueled effort doesn't look like that. Grace-fueled effort puts forward the work, but it trusts as it does it. It puts forward work. It makes the schedule. It comes up with a plan to deal with temptation. It gives practical steps for moving forward. It asks somebody else to walk alongside and help you. That's what grace-filled effort looks like, but it also looks like crying out to God, I can't do this on my own. I, 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 am, I need you. I need your sanctifying work. I need your help to come with me. I need you to come alongside me. I need to lean into the fact that I am, am just a sinner, but I've been called into your glory and your excellence. I've been giving these very precious and great promises. And when I live by faith in them, I get to partake in your divine nature. So Jesus, hook me into you. Let me be a part of that vine. I need help. That's the difference. One realizes they need help. The other doesn't. Grace-filled effort works hard, but it trusts harder. Grace-filled effort resolves and makes every effort to increase in virtue, which could be also translated as valor, moral excellence. It says, I will be morally excellent, but it does that according to the knowledge of Christ. And as we do that according to the knowledge of Christ, he is saying, I want to do that informed by what God says is morally excellent. Certainly not what our culture says is morally excellent. And as we do that, we say, I will become a master of my own desires. That is to say, I will have self-control. I will study those desires. I will know what they are. And like God told Cain, you must master sin or it will master you because it is crouching, waiting to destroy you. And then later he doesn't do that and kills his own brother. We must say, I'm going to master my own desire through the help that Christ can give. And I will do that and I will remain steadfast and I will learn patience, especially in the midst of difficulty. Because I know that broken down cars and cancer are not times where God is silent in my life, but it's times where he is using them. And his sovereign, good God will not waste an ounce of your pain, of your difficulty, of your frustration to make you more like him. So from the smallest, most mundane things to the biggest things that have totally rocked your world, he is saying you can be steadfast. Hook into me and let me take you and carry you there. And as you do that, you will produce godliness. You will become more like Christ. And you will see that you're more like Christ as you grow in brotherly affection and in brotherly affection, love. 
You'll know you look more like Jesus when you care more and more about the church. And the church doesn't become just a place that you go on Sunday, but it becomes your family. And you love those people and you know about their life. And you don't just live on Sunday morning, but it's Monday through Saturday. And they're in your home and you're running around together and their kids have broken your stuff. (laughs) That's when you're going to know that you're increasing in brotherly affection. And as we do that together as Redemption Hill Church, we get to do that in gospel change community. And it takes us to mission, not just brotherly affection, but love and charity and love for our world and love for the people who don't deserve to be loved. Because we know that we don't deserve to be loved. Sinners who sin greatly against us directly will be able to love them and care for them. Because that's what it means to grow in these qualities. And brothers and sisters, if you do that, you will not be ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You will not be ineffective or unfruitful to our church, to our body, and to the kingdom of God. You will see just the opposite. You will produce fruit among fruit, and that will just encourage you, man. It's going to pump you up because you're going to look and you're going to see, oh, thank you, Jesus. Because the reality is this, is a Christian that is not increasing in these qualities It's like a house with a leaky roof. And as the water kind of drips down and drips in, we know that it starts to set and settle and rot things and stagnate things. And a lot of us look at our leaky roof house and we see the rings start to show up on the ceiling. And we can do two things. We can just flat out ignore them and become apathetic and not put forward good grace-fueled effort. Or we fall into legalism and we just get the paint out. And you just paint over that little spot. And it's baptized legalism. We're acting as if that's going to do something. We're, we're, we're not actually addressing the, the root of the problem. We don't want to get in there. We don't want to do the painful work of removing the ceiling. The painful work of inviting someone else into my home, into my world, and saying, I got a problem, and I need you to help me fix it. Another more skilled laborer, if you will, to come along and help us do that. We don't want to do that, so we hide that. We try to keep that problem on ourselves. We paint over the ceiling until eventually a storm rolls up in life. And when that issue has gone unaddressed over and over and over again, the whole roof gets blown off. And your house comes tumbling down because cross beams are broken. What we have to see is we can't be like that. If you want the house to be fixed, you got to get to the root of the problem. You've got to fix the roof. And that's going to take some work and some effort. And if you're anything like me, that's going to require some help. Because I don't know what I'm doing. You need someone else to get up on that ladder with you, if you will. And in this little parable that I've made up, Jesus is the ultimate carpenter. And if you're sitting here and you're saying, man, the roof is already off. It's blown off. I don't know what to do. I'm just holding this thing together the best that I can. The great carpenter is there. And he can rebuild your life. If you place your faith in him and your trust in him and him alone, he will change you. He will help you grow. And you won't be standing there just holding it all by yourself. And he will save you into a family that can come alongside you. Brothers and sisters in Christ who will help you tear apart that rough. That will help you do the hard work. Get into the dirty messiness of it all and repair it and fix it. So you might experience lasting change. 
We cannot go around just painting over those things, trying to make it look good on the outside. We've got to get inside and pursue these qualities, but you only do it by becoming that partaker of the divine nature. You only do it by faith in Jesus Christ. See, as we embark on this journey of what it means to experience biblical and lasting change, what it means to plumb the depths of the scripture and learn what it means to claim that it claims that it is granting everything to us pertaining to life and godliness are true. We doing that, we do that knowing that we're ultimately fruitful because what God has done and not what we have done. And we see that in our last three verses here. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For you who practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is teaching them, he's saying, listen, if you're not increasing in these qualities, people who are not increasing in these qualities, they're so nearsighted, they can't see past the end of their nose. They're functionally blind because they've forgotten their past purification of sin. They've forgotten that they've been cleansed. What he's saying is they've forgotten the very truths, the most basic truths of the gospel. And, and they're missing that. That's where that gap is coming in. They're, they're, they're missing somewhere of like, how is what Jesus did on the cross for my sin applying to my everyday life? What he's saying is don't be so nearsighted. You've got to see that he's given you everything pertaining to life and godliness, that he's giving you what you need to be holy now, to be growing, to be fruitful, to be increasing, not decreasing and holding back. And, and at the same time, as he, as he does this, he, he tells them, so therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For you who practice these qualities, you will never fall. And he's talking about falling away from Jesus. If you're increasing in this, you will not lose your faith. You will not fall away from, from Christ. And in this way, you'll be richly provided an entrance into the internal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that's kind of alarming for people like me who grew up in a grace-saturated culture because we think, are you saying that I can like lose my salvation or that I won't be like, is this, is this uh, some kind of, maybe I'm not saved by faith, but do I gotta keep it by doing these things? And I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is actually quite the opposite. He, he's looking to this and he's saying to them, look, when, when you're increasing in these qualities, again, God just hasn't ordained the ends. He's also ordained the means. This is how God keeps that promise of keeping you. This is how God keeps the promise of making sure that you will be complete, that the good work that he started in you, he's not gonna stop. He doesn't just leave a job left undone, but he's continuing to work it out in you is through the increasing of these qualities. And you're experiencing that for yourself when you increase in them. It's because of what God has done, because we haven't been called into our own glory and excellence. It's because we're called into his. In Colossians 1, 9 through 14, Paul says this, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious mind for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. That sounds a lot like we've already talked about, right? You're seeing a lot of similarities in the language there. That you can walk in this morning, you can change over time you're bearing fruit you're increasing according to his glorious might but listen to what he says the father 
who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have to see here is God is the primary mover. God is the one who qualifies, delivers, and transfers. He's the one who does the initial work, and then he's bringing you along so that you can work alongside him. Ephesians 1, uh, verse 11 through 14 says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who worked all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that moment when you believed in him, when you heard about Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You are sealed, you are guaranteed that you're gonna make it to the end. The moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But you wanna know how you're assured in that? You wanna know how you can be really, really sure? Increase in these qualities. Grow. It's like stepping outside and saying, how do I know that the wind exists? Well, you step outside and you feel it on your face. You watch it move things and you feel the power of it when a giant storm rolls through. You want to know that you're safely held in the hand of God. You want to confirm your calling and your election. Make every effort to supplement your faith. And you will feel God change you internally. You will experience what it looks like to produce fruit in your life. You will notice the change that's happening in you. You'll look at other people and you'll see how he's changing them. And through evangelism and missions, you will experience the power of God as it overcomes a community. In that same kind of way, he's saying, you know how you can have assurance? He's being pastoral. He's saying, I know that it's scary sometimes. Am I really there? Am I really making it? Did you really call me? Did you really choose me for this, God? You want to know how you know? Experience him. Make every effort. Walk in a manner worthy of this calling. And that's how you'll see it. Kendall and I took some time. Really, Kendall, we made this graphic for you. I told him what to do. I called him. I said, hey, you have some time. You can make a graphic for me. Because I want to show you what, what this is like. I am highly, highly visual uh, myself. And so this is what, what I want us to see. This was happening in this passage as a whole. What does it mean to say, I'm called into his glory and excellence, and now he's telling me to confirm that calling and that election? What's happening here? What we see first is first is just that. You're called into his glory and excellence. Then, through faith in his precious and great promises, you become a partaker of the divine nature. You are changed, and you begin to experience that change. And as we do that, because of what he's done, because of the promises that he's given us, we get to pursue moral excellence and all the other seven things that come after it. And we begin to grow in those things as well. And as that happens, you then make your calling and your election sure. You confirm that calling and election in your life as you grow those things. And that's the process of salvation that we're taken through over and over and over again in our lives. That's what it looks like. It, it's almost like a, a, a wheel on a, on a line going up, right? And you're on that wheel and it is the just <laughs> sin, faith and repentance, gospel. Sin, faith and repentance, gospel. And you repeat that process every day. And as you do that, you get closer and closer and closer to Jesus. 
and you grow and grow and grow and grow, and you confirm that calling and that election into Christ Jesus. That's what's happening over and over and over again. It's this process that is happening. You'll grow in your assurance as you grow in your personal experience of God's power to change you. My number one goal this morning as I wrap up was to instill hope. When we talk about something like change, uh, if anything, when I, when I told people these are going to be the values of our church and I took them from our sin church, they always like to pick on that one. That's intimidating. People don't want to be told to change. They don't want to do that. The reason why, change is hard. Our functional theology doesn't line up with our cognitive theology. Meaning sometimes we know what's true here, but we don't really live that way. And that understanding and that feeling of hope is one of those examples. If I came up to you and said, hey, is God powerful enough to, to change every aspect of you? I don't think any of you would, would say, especially not now, I guess, would look at me and say, I don't think you can do it. God's just lacking the power and strength to change my life. But I think all of us, myself included, at some point in life have felt like, am I ever going to get it? Am I ever going to grow? Is this thing just going to plague me for the rest of my life? Am I never going to conquer this sin? I'm not saying you'll conquer your circumstances. The outside things within you won't be hard and difficult and constantly assault you. God is in control of those things, and that is not the promise that he is making. But he is making a promise that he will change you over time. It's going to require us to do the really hard and difficult heart work. It's going to require you to opening your life up to other, wiser, more mature Christians. That's absolutely true. But I promise you, the Bible is true. And when it says he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, he's not pulling your leg. It's true. You've been given everything that you need. On our resource table out there, you're free to take them. There are, there are these little booklets that, that talk about those specific problems of life. You can take them if you would like. If there's something that you're struggling with it and it's not out there, let me know. And we can order that. That's just one thing. Again, I'm not saying one thing solves all problems, but that's just one way. You can put into actions a sermon like this and these conversations. Is those difficulties. And if you're saying, like, I just don't know what the Bible has to say about my anxiety, my anger, my parenting, my marriage, all those kind of things that are out there, my, my struggles, I want you to know the Bible has a lot to say. And we have those booklets out there. You can take them as you need them. We're happy to replenish them. And as your pastor and someone who loves you and wants to care for you, I want to be a part of your life. I am not too busy to do this hard work with you. I know a lot of us could probably look at our situation. You see Brittany pregnant, holding a baby with a uh, three-year-old. I think she had a headlock earlier. <laughs> it is our joy to walk with you 
in these things. Our absolute pleasure. Let us walk with you. Invite us into the craziness of your life. And I will tell you this, you will not share something that we say, oh my goodness. You will share stuff and I'll say, yeah, yeah. Maybe my sin didn't manifest that way, but I've been there. Yeah, you're right. I didn't get angry exactly the same way you did, but I've been angry. I didn't get anxious in the exact same way you did. I've, I've been anxious. That's not going to happen. We're going to look at you and we're say, yep, we've been there. We know what this is like. And here's the great and wonderful news. God has not left you unequipped. He's not left his church unequipped. You are not doomed. But you have so much hope to experience biblical and lasting change. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. We love all that you do and all that you accomplish in this world. Jesus, I thank you that you are the kind of God who changes us over time. I thank you, Lord, that you you love us so much, you're not going to leave us where we are. I thank you, God, that when you save us, you bring us into a process. When you justify us by faith, we're brought into this process to look more and more like you. Because, God, as we look more and more like you, I didn't just talk about this, God, but joy increases in this life. It is good to grow in Jesus. So God, I just pray that you would have your way with us, have your way with this little church. Help us to have true vulnerability and wise vulnerability. Help us know that that doesn't mean we have to tell everyone all of our dirty secrets. But Lord, we really need to tell someone. Help us be wise as we choose wise Christians to walk with us that we're a gift to one another. Lord, I pray for those who, who are spiritual in our church, that they would make time for this, that they would see the burdens of others and they would not leave them there, but they would come and restore them with a spirit of gentleness, that we are all in this together. And God, I just thank you. You've given everything we need so that we might live godly. I ask this in your name. Amen.